Hello, and welcome to the Parabola Podcast. I'm story editor Betsy Cornwell. This month we'll be looking at the newly released issue of Parabola, volume 44, number 4, Goddess, and we'll begin with Christine Irving's essay, Inanna, Relevance and Return. The Sumerian goddess Inanna came to the notice of modern women in 1983 when Diane Wolkstein and Samuel Kramer published Inanna, Queen of Heaven and Earth. But she first appeared in recorded history about 5,500 years ago. Written myths are almost always predated by many generations of oral traditions, so it is plausible to assume that her stories were passed down orally through many generations before writing became extant. Throughout the centuries, she has morphed and changed as she moved from culture to culture, empire to nation. Over the years, Inanna became Ishtar, Asherah, Astarte, Astareth, Aphrodite, Ainina, Danina, and possibly Dali of the Georgians. Her worship died out slowly in the Middle East between the 3rd and 5th centuries AD, but she left her mark in Marian theology, with hymns of lamentation attributed to Mary, but taken straight from Inanna's lamentations for Damuzi. Inanna was the goddess of sexual love and war. She was fierce, conniving, intelligent, quick to anger, but just as quick to reward loyalty. There are many stories about her, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, Inanna and the Halupu Tree, Inanna and the God of Wisdom, the Courtship of Inanna, and the Descent of Inanna. It was the latter that caught and held the interest of women involved in goddess spirituality. Although the myth is titled The Descent of Inanna, the salient point is actually her return. The tale begins with Inanna's decision to visit the underworld to meet her sister Ereshkigal, queen of the underworld, who is mourning her dead husband. Bad blood exists between the sisters. Inanna has been instrumental in the death of the bull of heaven. The other gods gossip about Inanna, speculating about her motives. Perhaps she wishes to make peace with her sister. Perhaps she wishes to steal her powers, but Inanna keeps her own counsel and determines to go alone. Wisely, before she goes, Inanna concocts a plan with her trusted handmaiden Ninshabar, giving her explicit instructions about what to do if her mistress does not return. Then, girding herself with her seven powers, she rides away, driving her own chariot towards the underworld. On hearing of Inanna's arrival, Ereshkigal orders the gatekeeper to close the seven gates of her palace. As Inanna requests passage through each gate, she must divest herself of one of her powers. In the end, she arrives in Ereshkigal's hall naked. Her arrival coincides with the entrance of the judges of the underworld. They sentence her to death and stick her body on a meat hook where it hangs for three days and three nights. Meanwhile, Ninshabar has begun making the rounds of the gods. Each one turns her down until she reaches Inanna's father, Enki. Enki heeds Ninshabar's plea. He scrapes dirt from beneath his fingernails. Mixing it with a little spittle, he fashions two tiny winged creatures called Gala to sneak past the gatekeeper and fly down into Ereshkigal's realm. To one he gives the life-giving plant, and to the other the life-giving water. He whispers instructions in their ear and sends them on their way. Down in the underworld, Ereshkigal continues to mourn, wailing unceasingly day and night. She is pregnant with her dead husband's child. When the Gala find Ereshkigal, they hover by her ears and mourn with her. When she groans, oh, my liver, they groan, oh, my liver. When she cries, oh, my heart, they cry, oh, my heart. 
Ereshkigal is so grateful to be heard and comforted on her own terms that she offers them anything they desire. Following Enki's instructions, they ask for the body of Inanna. Anointing her with the precious life-giving water and plant, the Galas restore Inanna to life, and together they set out on the journey home. Once again, however, the judges intervene and refuse Inanna passage unless she finds someone to take her place in the underworld. She promises to find a replacement, and accompanied by a posse of enforcing demons, she storms up into the sunlight. Thus begins a round of visits to Inanna's hairdresser, her son, and her brother, all of whom have mourned her with the proper mourning rites. Faithful Ninshabar offers to take Inanna's place, but the goddess vehemently refuses. Finally, they come to Inanna's consort, Damuzi, who has barely noted her absence. He is sitting under a fig tree, feasting. Inanna, incensed at his indifference, orders the demons to grab him. But Damuzi calls upon Utu, the sun god, Inanna's brother, to honor an old debt and rescue him. Utu helps him escape the demons, and he manages to hide. The demons, however, are relentless in their pursuit and eventually run him to ground. Even then his luck holds. Damuzi's adoring sister intervenes and begs for his life, promising to take his place underground for half of every year. Tired of the whole business and possibly half-inclined to take Damuzi back, Inanna agrees. This is a complicated tale, dovetailing and interweaving in places with other cycles and creatures of myth. It is a multi-level teaching story, depicting what Joseph Campbell called the hero's journey, explicit directions on how to properly mourn a death, the advantage of prior planning, faithful service, parental love, the courage to face the unknown, and the bad consequences inherent in wrong action. Lots of information to be packed, condensed, and synthesized into one fabulous story. At every level, this myth resounds with the true situations in which humans of every age find themselves. But it specifically appeals to modern women because in Inanna, we find a heroine who predates the extremes of patriarchal culture in which we find ourselves enmeshed today. She acts independently while remaining in good relationship with men, her father, brother, and hairdresser. She has a strong, solid friend and ally in Ninshabar. She is not afraid to face the unknown and perseveres in the face of loss and sacrifice. Like many women, she struggles in relationship with her mate. But the part of this story with which women resonate most strongly is the journey of relinquishment, the egoic death, and the restoration of power. Using this part of the myth, circles of women have been manifesting and enacting their own rituals of letting go, creating space, and allowing new ways of seeing and being to take the place of what no longer serves them. Sometimes the journeys are entirely imaginary, taking place as guided meditations in quiet, dimly lit rooms. Sometimes women build metaphorical gates as simple as seven scarves laid in rows across a room. Sometimes the gates are more elaborate structures, painted and adorned. The gates may be assigned particular attributes, names, colors, stones, trees, etc. The seven chakras lend themselves particularly well to this rite. Furthermore, the descent and return may be pinned to a particular life passage, like a marriage, a birth, the loss of a job or start of a new career, the death of a beloved mate, child, pet, or friend, it works well for any occasion that requires a relinquishment or some kind of death, but also offers renewal and restoration. 
In every ceremony I've been privy to or have described to me, there is always a time of study and preparation. Women do not undertake such a ritual unprepared or in ignorance of what it means. Always the gatekeepers remain present and aware, careful to gauge the mood of the group and the progress of each participant. Inanna, with her link to sex and death, is not to be invoked without safeguards in place. Her myth specifically calls for opening the doors between the conscious and unconscious mind incrementally and ceremoniously. The story warns us that the journey is a long and dangerous one, a risky business that requires gravitas and can involve tears, howls, vomit, diarrhea, or ecstasy. The descent offers a chance to look clearly at tired habits of thought and action. A woman may finally admit to an addiction or see how some long-denied pattern of action has failed her time and again. The return offers a chance for something to be born or recovered. A woman may reclaim a talent or a forgotten dream put aside years before that suddenly offers itself once more as a viable choice. The possibilities are endless and unique to each individual on the journey. The point is change. The goddess in every form she takes is all about change. Inanna, the queen of heaven, replete with every kind of talent, adoration, and power, begins her journey because of a desire to change. We don't know why. Often in old teaching tales, the questions left unanswered hold their own secret wisdom. Perhaps she doesn't know. Perhaps she longs for mystery. Undoubtedly, she is aware that in undertaking this journey, nothing will ever be the same again. The point is, she decides on a change and then rides out to meet it. A wise woman once told me, change or die. At the time, she terrified me, and I had no idea what she meant or why she would say such a terrible thing. But her words continued to ring in my ears through the years every time I had a choice, every time a risk presented itself, or a circumstance demanded courage. Her directive did indeed change my life, and always for the better, though at times it took a little hindsight to understand how. Inanna's descent and return exemplify the both-and inherent in goddess spirituality. One may change oneself and hence the surrounding world, both by releasing and or embracing. Possibly yesterday's release will one day become tomorrow's embrace, or vice versa. The journey is an ongoing process of dismantling and rebuilding that goes on throughout life. Inanna's ritual gives us focus, a sacred space in which to step out of time and consciously enact a psychological process that one way or another life will force us to undertake anyway. Engaging in it willingly, we emerge chastened, humble, and radiant, suffused with the power and strength of an ancient archetype. Inanna returns in glory to walk the world anew, as she has so many times before. I'd like to share with you now my web exclusive about one of my favorite religious figures from my home in Ireland, the Sheila Nagig. She lives on the lintels and doorways of churches all over Europe, especially in Ireland. She looks out in defiance from the stone in which she's carved, teeth bared, eyes wide, legs spread. Her hands hold open her exaggerated vulva in a pose that is deeply shocking to most modern viewers, especially given the religiosity of her surroundings. 
There are hundreds of her, and more being rediscovered all the time, in ruins, old barns, fields, and bogs. Her name is Sheila Nagig, but her origins are so mysterious that no one is even sure of that name's meaning. No one knows exactly why the Sheilas were made, what they represented, or how they came to be built into the literal foundations of a church that has, at the very least, a fraught relationship with female sexuality. Still, there are many stories. One of the most popular is that the Sheila Nagig represents a woman in labor, holding her body open as she births a child. Some evidence suggests that Sheila icons were loaned out to pregnant women to encourage them and help them have faith in their body's ability to accommodate a seemingly impossible task. Many modern-day women first encounter Sheila Nagig imagery in this context, as influential midwives like Ina Mae Gaskin and other birth professionals have adopted her as a kind of mascot. Given our current understanding of the power of visualization and positive thinking, it's easy to see how powerful a symbol like Sheila would be to the pregnant first-time mother who doubts her body's capacity, or as a reassuring visual anchor to a woman in the throes of labor. When I gave birth in an Irish public hospital, a crucifix hung on the wall across from my bed. Such an image of sacrificial love, of the suffering of the body as a channel for new life and salvation, is far from irrelevant to the birthing process. Still, in a world where the female body is often considered inherently obscene, both more hypersexualized and more taboo than the male body, I can only imagine how powerful it would have been to see Sheila watching over me in that moment. However, Sheila Nagig figures do not always fit neatly into the iconography of birth and fertility. Many of them have skeletal bodies, long and meager breasts, and deeply lined faces, or even simply skulls for heads. These markers, suggesting old age or death, lead to two of the other most popular theories. The first is that Sheila's represent the circle of life in its entirety, encompassing the moment of birth in the depiction of the vulva and the moment of death in the imagery of skulls and bones. The other is that she is the embodiment of the triple ages of the goddess, the maiden, mother, and crone, brought together in one body. Still other theories suggest that Sheila gigs were used as a warning, a symbol to tell possible invaders that the women of the community were fearsome and not to be trifled with. Other scholars connect them with apotropaic magic and argue that they were used to ward off evil, as folklore sometimes told that a woman exposing her genitals could frighten away evil spirits. Still others suggest that they might be a warning against the sin of lust, although it seems to me personally that this theory comes from a post-Christian paradigm that holds overt sexuality to be more sinful in the first place. Fertility, birth and death, ferocity, protection, sexuality, all of these are surely aspects of the goddess and not mutually exclusive of each other. It seems simplistic to argue that Sheila Nagigs must represent only one of these ideas, just as it would be to argue that any sacred symbol represents only one concept. The sacred masculine is ubiquitous in the modern age. Christ on the cross, the Buddha in meditation, the male founders and leaders of almost every major world religion practiced today. Growing up, I was taught that masculine pronouns and names for God were meant to stand for all mankind, just as the word mankind was meant to include me too. Yet I still found myself longing for and seeking out goddess imagery. In 2018, I wore my 11-month-old baby to Fela Shilinagig, a Shilinagig festival in Kilnaboy, County Clare. To begin the festival, a lecturer led us up a small grassy hill to the ruin of an old church, where a clear Shilinagig carving was visible over the main entryway. 
Sheila seemed to watch us as the lecturer discussed the symbol's history and provenance and the various folktales and myths about what her image might really mean. There were once thousands of wooden gigs in Ireland, she told us, but they were systematically burned, along with many other pagan relics when the island converted to Christianity, an event portrayed in myth by St. Patrick driving out the snakes. We would have no idea today that the wooden Sheilas had ever existed at all, except that the church kept records of their burning. Listening to her, rocking back and forth as I stood to settle the baby drowsing on my chest, I thought there was possibly no better representation of the goddess, no clearer insight into what the Sheila Nagig might really mean than that. The very thing meant to destroy her is the means of her survival. Afterward, the organizers led a craft workshop where we created dozens of clay and salt dough Sheila gigs, some destined to come home with participants, and some to be hung on the lintels of former Magdalene laundries, places where fallen women were sent away from their families and often worked to death under the guise of religious charity up until the 1990s. I took my salt dough Sheila home and baked her dry, which changed her shape a little. She sat on the mantle over my fireplace for more than a year, until the Irish damp got to her again and she started to crumble away. There's a new Sheila guarding my fireplace now. Making her anew doesn't bother me. Her mutability seems part of her mythology, the shifting and multifaceted symbolism of the goddess, too. Finally, I'd like to share with you the focus for the goddess issue from editor Tracy Cochran. She is the holy oneness. That's why she is a mystery, says the African healer and guide Baba Mandaza Augustine Kademwa in conversation with the Buddhist teacher Thanissara in this winter 2019-2020 issue of Parabola. He speaks of Mother Earth, whom he says accepts to be called by many names, including goddess. But this issue on goddess reveals that she is always to some degree unknown. The brain isn't the highest human function, points out physician and author Rachel Naomi Remen in conversation here with Parabola's West Coast editor, Richard Whitaker. The highest human function is shrouded in mystery. This is necessarily so because our ultimate purpose may be to realize how our human nature is inseparable from great nature, from oneness. This realization cannot be known as an established fact apart from us, but it can be expressed through compassionate action. The Tibetan Buddhist teacher and author Avikrita Vajrasakya here describes Tara, the goddess of compassion. She is known as the one who helps us accomplish all our activities and who liberates us from fear. In Tibetan Buddhism, it is believed that Tara made a vow always to appear in female form and always to come to comfort those who suffer and feel afraid, and who doesn't at times, because in our darkest moments, most of us long for a motherly embrace. This issue reveals that the goddess's healing spirit takes many guises, as an extraordinary human, the Bengali joy-permeated mother, as symbols in the tarot, as the diverse goddesses who come to us in ancient tales, and as visions in the songs of Nobel-winning bard Bob Dylan. But the goddess always leads us home to Mother Earth, reminding us that no matter how far we may have strayed, we are meant to be here, to be part of a greater whole. May this issue help restore you to wholeness.
Our time for this month's podcast has come to an end. Please feel free to visit us at parabola.org, where you will find a host of other stories, essays, and poems available to read for free online. We'd also love to connect with you on social media, where we have active communities on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. Remember that, thanks to the Gurdjieff Foundation of Illinois, you can now also access a free searchable index of our entire 40-year archive. Parabola Magazine is a non-profit publication, and we rely on listeners and readers like you to keep going. Please consider subscribing, purchasing a back issue, or making a tax-deductible donation to the magazine at parabola.org. Our final thought for today comes from Doreen Valiente, who said, Let my worship be in the heart that rejoices, for behold, all acts of love and pleasure are my rituals. I'm Betsy Cornwell, and this has been the Parabola Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you.